I am so, so happy to be here tonight. I don't know if I've told you this in a while, but it's really the truth. Wednesday nights, as much as I love Sundays, Wednesday night is my favorite service of the week. And um, there's four of them now, you know, four services a week. But I love Wednesday just because we get to go through the Word verse by verse together. And it doesn't matter if we're in Revelation or Romans or Genesis or Daniel, wherever we've been. But it's also the fact that um, when you come to church on Wednesday nights, I know that you're here because you love the Lord. Some people come to church on Sunday morning because somebody asks them and they feel bad about saying no or something like that. But you're here because you love Jesus, because you wouldn't be out here. I, I tell my friends all the time, I said, hypocrites don't come to church on Wednesday night. And they don't come and pray on Saturday nights. But man, you're here tonight, and I'm so glad you are. Well, I want you to stand with me if you would, and um, I want to uh, take you tonight. We're going to go right back to Revelation 19, then later we'll go through parts of Revelation 20. The second coming of the Lord, as we talked about earlier, that whole process, it includes the rapture of the church, includes the tribulation period, it includes you know, Armageddon, it includes the return of Christ, it includes so much more than what you just think. And um, we're going to keep working through this, and tonight we're going to look at two passages that really should cause us to celebrate. And I was telling Becky today earlier, and um, then I had a few people call that um, could be here tonight and just say, Revelation, when you read it, you got to remember, although it parts of it look horrific to us, the early church was rejoicing because they were going through such awful persecution. I mean, bloody, bloody, brutal persecution. And to see how God triumphing. And you and I, we are not going through anything like that. There are people in the world that are tonight. But this is such victory as we read it this evening. So tonight we'll start again in Romans, excuse me, Romans, Revelation chapter 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there, and its rider's name was Faithful and True. For he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and a name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven dressed in the finest of pure white linen followed him on white horses, and from his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. Now, here's a type of the symbolism that we've been talking about. This would be a pretty grotesque image if out of the mouth of Jesus was becoming this long, two-edged sword, but it's, it's the Word of the Lord. with an iron rod, he will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a winepress. And on his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of Kings and Lord of all Lords. Jesus, when I walked in tonight, the congregation was singing, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. 
Lord, would you cause us to worship and rejoice, give us supernatural understanding and insight. Lord, as we look at these closing chapters of Revelation tonight, oh God, all I can say right now, and I know what I'm going to preach, it's just that it's Maranatha. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, how we look for your return, which in Christ's name I pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. I was on the phone just before I came out for service tonight, and um, Marcella Beck uh, got a good, she, she does have to go through cancer treatment, but she just, they just got in from the Kermana Center, and there's a new kind of cancer treatment, so she won't have to have chemo, and it's going to be so much better upon her, and uh, the family's really encouraged. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise for that? That's an answer to prayer. I'm going to ask you to be praying for Becky and, and, and Benjamin and Amy. They're headed to Georgia early in the morning. Uh, Becky's father is not doing well at all. And uh, if you will just be praying with them, and, and um, they're taking off early in the morning to go be with him, and they'll be coming back on Sunday. But uh, just hold them up in prayer. Her, the office has given her some time off so she can go down and, and check on her father again. Well, tonight we're looking at the second coming of Christ. <clears throat> The second coming of Christ. I just shared with you the, some of the aspects of what that second coming of Christ is all about. Jesus' words in Matthew 24 and verse 30 make me come back to my mind as I read this chapter tonight to you. And that is where Jesus said in Matthew 24, 30, And then at last the sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens and there will be deep mourning among all the peoples on the earth, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. They will mourn because they have a mark or somebody. If you can find what's causing this buzz up here, I, I'm afraid that's getting into the, um, the recording this evening. They'll mourn because they've rejected Christ. And when they see him coming, they'll understand this really was the Messiah. This was really Jesus. There's some things here I want to point out to you that uh, he's riding a white horse. Um, I don't know if that's literal or not. I don't really have a bone to pick with anybody who wants to say it's literal. I think it was the form of the most advanced warfare that they would have known at that time. Um, I don't think it's going to be a spaceship with nuclear missiles on it I, because Jesus doesn't need that. But um, it may be a horse. It, I mean, I, I think it's... Anybody in here like to ride horses besides me? I love riding horses, and uh, Becky and I lived and had really good friends who owned a Pasifina ranch, and we went riding every weekend. I miss that. But uh, I think it'd be kind of cool, but I don't know if that's what it's going to be, but he's coming back. The white horse is symbolic of triumph. It's symbolic of a conquering general. His name is Faithful and True. If you remember, I just put it in there. If you want to look it up later, you see Revelation 3.14. We've already seen that he's called that. The Bible says his eyes were like flames of fire. In other words, he could see right through us. He knows our motivations. He knows everything about us. And then on his head were many, many crowns. And I don't think all of these are in your outline, but you can circle them in the verse or you can write them in if you would like to. But what you're seeing here is a picture that the early church would have understood and especially the people of the Roman Empire would have understood. Becky and I have been to the 
places in Rome and walked up those ways because I wanted to just get the picture of them in my mind. The way that the Roman generals would ride in, they would first of all come uh, parts of the army, and then midway there would be the general and his family, and behind him some of it would be his uh, captured king or captured general, and they would, and then there would be more army following behind them. There'd be this great procession, but the conquering general like Titus would always wear ride a white horse. And so they would go in this procession right before the army, right before the city. And what these people are seeing here as John gives us the, the apocalypse or the revelation is they're seeing the picture of a conquering Lord. And who does he conquer? He conquers everybody. On his head are, there are many crowns. And, and the crowns are, you just need to read that, is all of the crowns. Every crown, every, crown, every kingdom, not just the superpowers like the United States or, or any other major country, but it will be every single little small third world banana republic, every little dictator like the guy down in Venezuela right now that's starving his people to death. It will be every single country where there's been a prime minister or a queen like England. God will conquer all as we've gone through this. A crown is a symbol of, of leadership. And what you're seeing here is that he is the king of kings. He's the leader of leaders. And the scripture goes on to say that there was a name written on him that only he could understand. Um, the closest I have to, to comparing that with, and I'm not really sure what that means, and I have, I've, I've read so many books and commentaries on, on this subject over the years. I haven't ever found anybody that really gives, gives a, uh, a satisfactory answer, but one day it just dawned on me, and I just wrote it in my notes, quit struggling with this because it's a name only he can understand. You and I don't understand it, but Jesus understands it, and it's, it's all right with Jesus, it's all right with me. Is that good with you? If it ain't, you've got a problem. So, you know, if it's all right with Jesus, only he understands. But the Bible says he wore a robe dipped in blood. Now, there are some commentators that believe that this robe dipped in blood is, the, the, is, is his enemies. I believe it's symbolic of the blood that Jesus shed for our sins. This is exactly what I believe that is. And if you want to disagree with that, that's fine. But I've gone through the, all the way. We've been pointing to the cross, pointing to the cross, what Christ did. And I think this is what it's all about because he comes out of heaven on this white horse, the robe dipped in blood. And then he has the title, the Word of God and the King of Kings. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, shouting to the vultures flying high in the sky, come and gather together for the great banquet God has prepared. Come and eat the flesh of kings, generals, and strong warriors, of horses and their riders, and of all humanity, both free and slave, small and great. And then I saw the beast and the king of the world and their armies gathered together to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. Now that's interesting to me is how deceived they can be to see this heavenly appearance and they're still going to fight against the Lord. The beast was captured and with him the false prophet who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast, miracles that deceived all who accepted the mark of the beast and worshipped his statue. Both the feast and beast and his false prophet were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur and their entire army was killed by the sword that came from the mouth of the one riding the white horse and the vultures all gorged themselves on the dead bodies. 
What you're seeing here is an emphasis on the continued deception of the devil on behalf of the beast, these deceptive miracles. I have shared before, it's been a long time since I've talked about this. Um, we went through a period um, where I had to teach on this. Uh, I have seen counterfeit miracles. I've seen, they're known as demon healers. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to get into all of that, but they're counterfeit miracles. There is an illegal access into the power of God. I mean, there is, uh, we don't believe in ghosts and we don't believe in stuff like that, but there are people who sell themselves out to the devil and somehow or another by doing that they're able to to conjure to do uh, signs and wonders the scripture refers to them as miracles that would deceive the very elect well these miracles are deceiving the people of the world because you know if I was to start advertising that signs and wonders and miracles were going to happen, there would be people showing up just for the miracle and not to follow Christ. Because there's a lot of people in the New Testament that came to see the miracle, but then they wouldn't follow Christ. Herod was hoping that Jesus would do a miracle. Miracles don't bring revival. The purpose of, of signs and wonders is to turn people's hearts to Jesus, but the purpose of what the enemy is doing here is to try and turn the hearts of, of lost people to himself and to capture them. Scripture goes on to say that this beast and the false prophet, they are two human beings that, 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 that are demonically possessed or oppressed or however you want to put it, they're thrown alive into the very lake of fire. Now, we know from our previous, we've already talked about this, we know that this is an eternal lake of fire. We know that this is a fire that doesn't end. And if you'll look at Revelation 13 and verse 4, verse 4, remember this, they worship the dragon for giving the beast such power, and they also worship the beast. Who is great as the beast, they exclaimed. Who is able to fight against him? Well, chapter 20 answers that. Jesus is. And if you'll pardon my way for saying it, when I was a youth pastor, every once in a while I'd tell our kids, I'd say, you know, you've got to remember, Jesus will kick the devil's butt. And I know that's kind of crass, but kids understood that. And sometimes I think Christians need to get, we don't need to be obsessing over the devil. The devil's no big deal. He's defeated. Christ has already conquered him. The only way he has any influence in your life is you begin to pay attention to his lies and things. So Jesus comes and defeats him, and this leads us into uh, the time called the millennium. The millennium. So let me talk to you because there's a lot of confusing things and there's a lot here and I'll try to tie it all together at the end. So I know you're going, wow, Pastor, you're going through this in a hurry. It's because I need to tie it all up at the end and, and rather than just camp on one. And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. Again, this, I think, right here is symbolism, because how do you bind a spiritual being with a physical chain, okay? Even demoniacs, remember the demoniac that Jesus set free? He would break the chains that they bound him with. And um, so this is some sort of change for, for John to be able to understand it and to be able to write it to people. This is some way that the devil is going to be bound. He sees the dragon, that old serpent, who is the devil, Satan, and bound him in chains for a thousand years. Then the angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked. 
He shut and locked so that Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished, and afterwards he must be released for a while. Now, in Revelation 20, the millennium, this thousand-year period, is mentioned several times. So let me talk to you about three predominant views, and then I'll tell you the view that I believe is biblical and um, I believe is scriptural. Number one, there's the premillennial view. Jesus returns to, to establish a specific thousand-year kingdom. This is a strong view. Its strength, I believe, is in the fact that it comes and helps us to understand all of the scriptures that have to do with the events that are going to happen before the return of Christ, but it also happens to help us understand those events that happen after the rapture, during the tribulation, right up to this time of, of the thousand years. Its weakness is simply this. The only time that this millennium is referred to by name like this is in Revelation 20. Now, we don't have time for this, but if, if, if you're interested later, I can talk to you about it. There are Old Testament prophecies about this millennial kingdom that I can point to you about. But where you specifically see, and it's mentioned over and over in Revelation 20, the thousand-year period, it's mentioned numerous times. There's a second view called amillennial. <clears throat> it's a symbolic view. They, it actually means no millennium. And so they read this, and they say the people who are amillennial go, well, this is just symbolic, like I said the sword was and the change were. And remember, I told you, you have to take where you can read it as literal, literal, and whether it's obvious symbolic, you take it symbolic. If it was symbolic, I don't think it would have been mentioned as many times in Revelation 20 as it was mentioned. If it was symbolic, I don't think it would have been as specific as it's mentioned. But what the people believe here is that the resurrected saints are going to have an opportunity to live in a thousand-year kingdom. What I see as the, as the weakness of it is it makes everything symbolic. And if you remember when we talked about symbolism at the very beginning, we talked about how to do that. And that message is online and the notes are online if you want to go back and look at it. And then this is an attractive view. I find a lot in this view to, um, to go, I really like, and there's some things that I can see in this. And that's the post-millennial view. And the view here is that Christ will, Christians will help Christ establish the thousand-year reign. It's a very optimistic view. It's a view that was very, very strong in North America and in Europe in the 1800s and the early 1900s. It began to fall out of favor because the world was not getting better. And what they taught in post-millennialism and... I have some friends that are post-millennial, and they, they just believe that, and we've sat and many late nights talking over these things, having coffee together, opening our Bibles. We're friends. We don't get angry at each other, but we talk about it. And they literally believe that the world is going to get better and better. And so when you ask them about what Jesus said, uh, that <clears throat> things would get worse and worse, their answer to that is, well, we're going to eventually take over the whole world. Eventually, it'll just be all Christians. Well, I can't find that in the Bible. It's hard to reconcile the post-millennial view with history. Okay? It's just very hard. History, I am working my way slowly through a three-volume world history written by a Christian scholar and it's just so devastating to read of all the atrocities 
But then you have these bright spots where people do really, really well in history. And you wonder why people don't get it and say, let's continue to do good works and do good things. But um, even as we're watching right now, uh, there are things that are happening that um, people will choose to believe a lie in order to advance or propagate a lie rather than say, I'm sorry I was wrong. Sometimes that happens even in churches. Let me talk to you a little bit. As I said, I'll try to bring all this together because this chapter, chapter 20 is the most controversial chapter in the whole book. It's, um, it's really, and again, I promised you, and I believe if, if you'll just follow me and, and, and take the notes that I'm giving you tonight, <clears throat> um, I think you'll come to terms with this and understand it. I think the reason that it's, that it's difficult and it's been such a controversial chapter is because people get overly obsessed on the thousand-year period. If you don't want to believe there's going to be a thousand-year period, then I, I don't have a truck with you. If you want to believe things are going to get better and better, I don't have a truck. I'll work with you to help things get better and better and better, okay? I, I'll do that. But I believe the strong biblical position is upon the premillennial return of Christ and the literal thousand years that follows that. If you ever want to dig a little deeper into it, he's, he's been dead for quite a number of years now, but um, rather than read popular books by people who are always trying to read signs into Revelation, uh, I would recommend to you uh, an author by the name of George Eldon Ladd. And George Eldon Ladd is, was a very respected evangelical author by Pentecostals and Charismatics and, and Baptists. And he wasn't a dispensationalist, but even dispensationalists respected him for the strength of his, of his theological and exegetical work. So let's go on what happens for this thousand-year period to take place. Something happens that theologians refer to as the binding of Satan. This time, it's a real deal. He's being bound. And the authority that you see here is that God delegates the key to an angel. Jesus has already defeated him. He's already defeated him. And Satan is literally bound. I don't understand that and how that happens, but I just know that if God wills it, it's going to be done. In Isaiah chapter 24, there is a little bit of a, a prophecy about this that I thought I'd share with you tonight. In that day, the Lord will punish the gods in the heavens and the proud rulers of the nations on earth. They will be round up and put in prison. They will be shut up in prison and will finally be punished. And then the glory of the moon will wane. The brightness of the sun will fade. For the Lord of heaven's armies will rule on Mount Zion. This is that thousand-year period. He will rule on Mount Zion. And he will rule in great glory in Jerusalem in sight of all the leaders of his people. What happens is when Jesus comes back, and we've already read about this horrific battle, we've read about this wedding supper three weeks ago or two weeks ago, we read about the, we studied the wedding supper that was taking place. Now we're here and this final cataclysmic battle that happens, which I'm sad to say there'll still be one more battle before we get to the end of the book, and I'll introduce you to that in tonight's teaching. 
But there will be this literal thousand-year period when the devil is locked up. The pit is shut and locked up. Now, here, this could be symbolic, but I don't think so. I think it's a literal place, and um, there are all kinds of theological words for it, but let me just kind of use the word netherworld. There's a literal place somewhere. Remember, time and space don't figure with God the way they figure with you and me, okay? And if, so you've got to, at some point, you have to, to look at these passages and go, okay, what's going on here? Is it under the earth? There are a lot of uh, people that believe it's literally under the earth. It doesn't matter to me. Somewhere, someplace, there is a place, and the word is Abaddon or abyss. There's an abyss that O Slufoot is going to be locked up, sealed up, shut up for a thousand years. And I think that's pretty doggone cool. I mean that the enemy, he will finally be shut up for a thousand years. And then he'll no longer be able to deceive. Now, remember just a few moments ago I shared with you all of these miracles, these false signs and wonders and miracles, they had been done to deceive the nations. Years ago when I was planting a church in Santony, Paraguay, I was taken back up into the Chaco, and if you've ever seen the movie The Mission, you've seen part of this. There literally was an idol that the Jesuits got so fed up with not being able to reach the Guadani Indians, and it's still there. And they would go up and build a fire in the head of it where smoke would come out and make fire come out, and one of the Jesuits would literally speak through a kind of a fashion megaphone and the Guadani Indians would bring sacrifices to Christ and bring offerings and gifts to Christ. They were, you know, I did a blog post yesterday, if you read it, called Doing the Right Thing the Wrong Way. They were really trying to reach them, but they were very difficult to reach. And so, in the name of evangelism, they were trying to use this thing that was idolatrous to try, so they did the right thing in a very wrong way. And to their shame, it's still there, and they love to take and to tell you about that in Paraguay. Deception. I want you to look with me because I think to really understand this so that you look at this and get it, I just thought it would be helpful. Let's look at Satan's activity right now. Satan's activity in the present age. The Bible tells us in Luke chapter 22 and verse 3 that Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12 disciples. Friends, Satan can take willing people, people who yield themselves to the devil, and cause them to do his will. He can take people who are willing to yield. That's the reason to, that Jesus says, I mean, that the Apostle Paul said in the book of Romans, don't yield the members of your body to sin. You've been delivered from that. You, because if you do, you will become captured by that. Peter said to Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You've lied to the Holy Spirit, and you've kept some of the money for yourself. Notice Satan filled his heart. Satan influenced Ananias to deceive other people. And so it's very important that, that we understand the emphasis that God has always put upon integrity and honesty and transparency because... In this case, I don't believe it was saying, as, I, as I've studied this over years, that Ananias and Sapphira were 
demonized. I don't think that's what it's saying. I just think he had let the fact that he wanted people to think better of him than what he really was, that he was more generous than what he really was. Um, and we all deal with this called image management. And we, we all have to be careful about that. You know, politicians do it. Sometimes parents have told me, says, I'm so afraid my kids are going to find out what I did when I was a teenager. And I said, you know, don't worry about trying to keep an image. You know, you don't have to hang all your dirty laundry out, but don't be afraid if your kid is struggling. Don't be deceptive. Help them grow and learn from that. The Bible goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 4.4 that Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. Now, is that verse in your outline? All right, circle that phrase, those who don't believe. That's an important phrase. By choosing to disbelieve Christ, are you listening? By choosing to disbelieve Christ, Satan can deceive you about anything, about forgiveness, about who you are in Christ, about who your neighbor is in Christ. I quoted from a book Sunday, uh, Getting Past What You'll Never Get Over. There's some people that can never let go. I kind of feel like breaking out that little song from Frozen, let it go, let it go. Occasionally, sometimes in talking with people who just hanging on to something, I'll start singing it and they'll go, don't sing that. I go, that's what you gotta do. Well, how? You gotta choose to believe what God says about your situation. Now, let's apply this, though, to why the activity of Satan today. When people choose not to believe the gospel, then Satan can blind them. That's the reason there's always hope for those who agree but haven't yet crossed the line. There's always hope. And so I meet people, yes, I believe there's a God. Yes, I believe in Jesus. It's the reason we must pray that Christmas is never removed, that Easter is never removed from our cultural understanding. Those two sacred holidays have done so much to be salt and light in Western culture, reminding people each year of the birth of a Savior, reminding people each year of the death and resurrection of a Savior who's coming back. It's why it's so important that we stand up. And I had this conversation today. It's not, I love homosexual people. I love them. I care deeply about them. I have friends, but I will never compromise in order to be approved or accepted because marriage is a sign of Christ's love for the church and church's, church's love for Christ. It doesn't matter how many of us have failed at having good marriages. That's not God's fault. That's our fault. But God gave marriage, not the state. And so when you choose not to believe, then the enemy can deceive you and blind you to your need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which leads me to the, and I put these together in an order that I hope will help you, because Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. In other words, he counterfeits goodness and he counterfeits truth to people. 
So when someone says to me recently, who doesn't go to church here, says to me recently, but you can't love me if you don't accept me and my decisions just like I am. And I go, I love my children, but there are a lot of their decisions I wouldn't accept because I knew better. Hello? They know I love them. It didn't make them very happy at the time, but they know I love them. And despite what you say, you know I love you. But the fact that you found a church or you found somebody with a collar or somebody with a stole or somebody with a cross hanging around their neck that says God accepts this, then God's lying in the Bible or this particular minister, quote, is smarter than God is in the Bible. It's amazing how that makes people mad as a wet setting in. Because Satan has come to them as an angel of light. And it just looks good. When I counsel with couples getting married, I say, now, you need to understand something. You're going to go through some, right now you're all in love. You can't keep your hands off each other, you know. But you're going to go through some difficult times. Matter of fact, you ought to slip just a little bit closer to Allison tonight, you know. Just sit real close to her, David. There you go. That's a lot of wilderness between the two of y'all right there. There you go. And the enemy will come. I'm sorry, buddy. The enemy will come. Like, she just slid away from you. I was trying to help you, Allison. <laughs> y'all can see Pastor Rick after service tonight. <laughs> Satan will come like an angel of light during those difficult times, and he's going to look so fine somebody else or she's going to look so fine and they understand you and they sympathize with you and they empathize with you and they just are so much more understanding or so much more kinder than your husband or your wife understand that Satan appearing as an angel of light what he's attempting to do is he's counterfeiting the good things that God has for you in a marriage in Ephesians 2.2, 2, I tell them a few other things that I won't tell you in here right now, but I'll tell you later if you want to know. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil. Circle that. Obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. There's that, remember I said that he's going to be bound somewhere. I don't know where it's at. It doesn't really matter to me. It's the unseen world. But also, the, the powers... We're battling against principalities and powers. That's where this, these false counterfeit miracles. But notice I keep saying the word counterfeit. It's not the real deal. Whatever miracle has happened by these kind of people, they never set people free. They just get them in greater bondage. Okay? A ministry that doesn't set you free, if you've got to keep going back to the prophet to get a word from God, you haven't been set free. You're addicted to a prophet interceding for you. If you have to keep going back to somebody who has a, quote, divine, ministry, divine healing ministry, because, you know, that's the only, that's not freeing you. Ministry is meant to free us. Jesus will liberate us so we can become powerful ambassadors for him in the kingdom of heaven. Are you tracking with me? So this is what the world is, is, is dealing with here. Satan, then he's at work. His, he is the spirit at work in the hearts of those that refuse to obey God. What Satan does is he provokes these desires in our heart, evil desires. He inflames them. He 
causes him to swell and to burn. And <clears throat> he's, when, when you yield yourself to him, and then look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 18. <coughs> we wanted, <coughs> excuse me, we wanted very much to come to you, and I, Paul, tried again and again, but Satan prevented us. Thank you, Pastor Rick. Satan prevented us. The enemy will do everything he can to block this church or any other church from doing evangelism. Every time you sense you're led to share with somebody and some kind of excuse comes up why you can't, that's the enemy trying to block you. Every time you have an opportunity to pray and you think maybe this is not the appropriate time, so, Pastor, do you pray when you're with your Muslim friends and your Jewish friends? Absolutely. Do you pray in the name of Jesus? Absolutely. You know, and if they pray and they want to say Allah's name, I'm not going to get all offended at that. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. Amen? Most of the time they ask me to pray. So my point is, is don't let the enemy keep you. But Satan was fighting to attempt to block Paul from getting to Rome. Then they will come to their senses, 2 Timothy 2.26. Then they will come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap, for they've been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. And what he's talking about here is church quarrels and controversies and conflicts, how the enemy tries to divide churches so that people go astray. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. What the enemy does is he looks for weak and lonely people that are hurting. And then somehow or another, when he attacks them, they withdraw from the fellowship of the church. And it doesn't matter how many times you call them. It doesn't matter how many times you go to see them. They keep withdrawing. And what's happening is Satan, for whatever the reason, sometimes it's not self-pity, sometimes... It's just, it doesn't really matter, or I don't feel any hope. What he's doing is he's seeking to devour them. And that's the reason it's so important we pray for one another. When Pastor Rick told you tonight, and I was sitting there, when Pastor Rick told you tonight at 11 o'clock, we come in here and pray for you, I hope you understand we really do that. I hope you understand we really do pray over these needs and requests. And I hope you understand we have a great confidence that God answers prayer. Some of you I've known for a long time. I believe that the reason you're here is because of answered prayer. I know the reason I'm here behind this pulpit tonight is because of answered prayer. Does that make sense? So we pray for one another. Pray for your small group. If you're not in a small group, get in them. Well, let's talk about the first and second resurrection. John chapter 5, verse 28 through 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Circle that phrase, the resurrection of life, and then circle the phrase, the resurrection of judgment. I've been reading the SV quite a bit lately. I really like it. It's... Um, very matter of fact, it's very comparable to the New American Standard Version. It's, it's more of a literal word-for-word -word translation. 
And so I, I just decided to use that tonight to commend it to you if, it's, if you're looking. I use a different translation of the Bible to read through every year for my devotional time. Let's look at the first and second resurrection here. Then I saw thrones, and the people sitting on them had been given the authority to judge. Now, who are these people sitting on those thrones? Remember we read about this earlier in the book of Revelation? They're the people who, at the rapture of the church, the dead in Christ rose first, and it included the apostles, it included the prophets, the, all the Old Testament saints that had lived for God, and now they were going to be resurrected because of what Christ had done. They're the ones sitting on the, those thrones. Remember, the, the apostles and the prophets were um, pointed out as being on those seats. So that's going back months now. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and for proclaiming the word of God. These are the people that were martyred during the tribulation. They had not worshipped the beast or his statue, nor accepted his mark on their forehead or their hands. They all came to life again. Now, let me pause right there. Remember we talked they couldn't buy, they couldn't sell. You know, remember we talked it's probably not a literal 666 on your hand or forehead, but it's some way you're going to knowingly give allegiance to the beast in order to be able to to buy or to sell. They all came alive again, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years had ended. There will be a second judgment. That's the judgment of those who died and never accepted Christ. Okay? Are you tracking with me? There's a lot of just, you know, I know this is a little different, but, you know, tonight my job is not so much to, to, to preach as to teach and walk you through all of this. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. Man, those people, I think we're going to stand up and salute them. I think we're going to cheer for them. But remember, those of us that were alive and remain, we're caught up in the air. The dead in Christ rise first. These are those tribulation saints. For them, the second death holds no power, but they will be priests of God like you and I will be, priests of God and of Christ, and will reign with him a thousand years. Death is the great divider of human beings. That's an important word. You either die in Christ or you die without Christ. If you die in Christ today, when the rapture happens, you will rise to meet him in the air. Remember that song we used to sing? I'm going to rise so high. We used to sing a song back in the 70s. When Jesus splits the eastern sky. Oh, man, that song is coming back to me tonight. Our students would sing that song, and we'd just get so excited about the coming of Jesus. I have never lost that excitement, by the way. I'm still excited about that. But if you die without Christ, you'll be awaiting that second resurrection, that resurrection to judgment. I don't want that for your children, my children, my neighbors, or your neighbors. It's the reason that at times I may have been a bit of a pest, but especially when someone I know and love is dying, 
I don't want them to slip into eternity without Christ. I don't want their blood on my hands. And I think we forget that sometimes, that if we warn them, their blood won't be on our hands, it'll be on their hands. But if we let Satan block us because we're too cowardly, then the scripture says their blood will be upon our hands. And so it's important that we share, not out of guilt, not out of fear, but out of love. And when my friend died this past year, one of my neighbors, I can remember, <laughs> first time I asked him if I could pray with him years ago, nope. Another crisis came up in their life, nope. Another crisis came up, nope. If we talked about faith, he just wouldn't talk to me. If I got to talking about the lawn or if I got to talking about fishing, which I don't know much about, I could talk about anything else, but if I talk about Jesus, there finally came a point where he let me talk to him about Jesus. And that's when he was dying. And he wept, and for about almost a year, we walked through that thing together. And he died in faith in Christ. I am so thankful for that. I am so thankful for that. Because I loved him. He was a fathead. But then he became a brother in Christ. <laughs> you know? It's the great divider, though. The millennium is the promise of God fulfilled to his people. God had been promising this. So I'm, I'm coming back to this millennial now. It's the promise of God. When the millennium takes place, Jesus is going to rule and reign from Jerusalem. And listen, it's going to be, we've never known a time like that. It's not the new heavens and the new earth. But can you imagine when Satan is not allowed to deceive anymore? Can you imagine when there won't be any crime, any violence, any rape? Can you imagine when Jesus rules and reigns? It will be the kingdom of peace. It will be the kingdom of righteousness. It will be the kingdom of joy. It will be the kingdom where people, where nations will beat their weapons into plowshares. When you go to Washington, D.C., if you go through some of the historical buildings, you'll see that verse of Scripture a lot. It will be the time where somehow or another, animals are more domesticated than they, what they are now. The lion and the lamb will lay down together. I mean, this is a... I have a, a wood uh, etching of the millennial kingdom and I just, sometimes I'll look at that and I'll just start dreaming. What is that going to be like? Because we've never known anything like that. But the question then arises, and, and again, I, I, I'm, I'm past 8 o'clock now and I'm not even halfway done with this message. Why, and my father-in-law, Becky, your daddy and I used to sit when they lived out on Chapman. We used to sit on in a port swing, looking down across the valley, and I'd say, Pop, why? Why would God bind the devil for a thousand years and then let him go again? Why? Because God's going to use this to show us the horrific nature of sin. 
And you can feel free to leave at any point you need to leave. But I'm going to get through this tonight with all of you or none of you. I'm going to get through this. During the tribulation, the world absolutely falls apart. During the millennial, the whole world is made perfect. When the thousand years come to an end, Satan will be let out of his prison. Why? He will go out to deceive the nations. There will be nations that after a thousand years of peace, they will still flock after the devil. That's the nature of sin. Gog and Magog, you've read about in your Old Testaments, in every corner of the earth, he will gather them together for a battle, a mighty army as numberless as sand along the seashore. And I saw them as they went up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded God's people in the beloved city. The fire came down from heaven on the attacking armies and consumed them. And then, now remember, the beast and the false prophet were thrown in, but at the millennium, then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur joining the beast and the false prophet, and there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. There is no annihilation there. There is no annihilation there. This is a, this is a very unique time that we're living in. Something, Israel, ever since I've been a little boy, Israel has been the focus of the news. But right now, there's a whole lot of hub-hub and activity going on in Israel. And I only bring this up not because I can read signs. I just think you need to be aware. I mean, the Golan Heights, I've told you, I've been there. You know why they could? They were occupied, but now they're being recognized, at least by the United States and Israel, as part of the... And that's got the whole world in a tizzy right now. That's got the whole world in a tizzy. And whether the president was wise in doing that or not wise in doing that, I don't know. But I do know it's got the whole world in a tizzy and it's got every eye on Israel right now in the Middle East. It's no longer about oil like people used to say. We don't need the Middle East for oil right now. We're an exporting nation of oil right now. Russia is exporting across to Europe right now. It's not what people thought. But the eyes of the world back there... I was sitting with one of my Jewish friends just recently, just a couple of weeks ago, and we were having lunch together. And I asked him, because every year they go back home to Israel. He has a very thriving, prosperous business here. And um, I said, why do you go back every year? And he looked at me, and he says, I never feel as at home as I do when I'm in Israel. He said, I was born here. I was raised here. I was educated here. But he said, I bought a home in Israel because when I go there, I feel at home. There's something happening and the people are being drawn. Israel is being regathered and the nations are being roused up and lots of them are angry. It's one of those signs that Jesus is returning again. And I don't know about you, but I think this is pretty cool stuff. I think the fact that Israel, that, that the United States has recognized and moved our embassy to Jerusalem, I think that's big news. It didn't make us friends, it made us enemies. 
But the scripture over and over says, blessed are those that stand with Israel. Now, that doesn't mean that everything Israel does is right. Where Israel does wrong, they need to be called out on it. That's not what they're saying. I think it has to do with this passage of scripture that we're reading like right now. Well, let me wrap it up here. And Becky, if you'll come on up. A perfect environment can never replace a new heart. Man's problem is not his environment. I've been saying that for years. It's not the environment. Environment can help, but you've got to have a new nature. You've got to have a new life. When Satan is locked away, his activity is going to be completely stopped. What I have finally come to the conclusion upon after years and years of studying this, my brother-in-law and I were talking, he was praying with me before I began the series. His father was famous for preaching on the book of Revelation. I think part of what just bothered me was how confused people got came to this book and how intimidated they got and I wanted to be sure that when I finished it that those of you that were patient enough to go through it with me felt like you could read it with profit and devotionally. But it wasn't until actually writing and putting everything together that this thought actually gripped my heart. And that is it's just like the nature of God that after the tribulation because he's good because his loving kindness is forever and because he's merciful God grants this millennium this thousand years where Christ rules from Jerusalem that which Herod fe feared that which every despot has ever feared, Christ will do. But it is that thousand years, just so that all of creation and all of heaven and everybody, including us, is going to be there, understands. There will still be those who will choose sin over Christ. They will choose to listen to the devil over Christ. But in his mercy, all of those people that come through that time, they'll have a chance to say yes to Jesus. They'll have a chance to say yes, not just to peace and prosperity. They'll have a chance to say yes to Jesus and be born again. Isn't that cool? I mean, it's just like God to do everything he can to get everybody that will into heaven. Whosoever will. Whosoever will. Whosoever will. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. Amen? So, although you and I won't be here for that time, we'll be ruling and reigning with Christ in heaven. God's plan of salvation will still be going on this earth. But, hold on. There's a new heaven and a new earth coming. And it's going to be unlike anything we've ever dreamed. And we're going to be part of that. And so this book gets better and better and better. And that's 
it's a little easier to preach on than this chapter was. So I can't wait to get there with you. Would you stand with me tonight? Let me pray with you. Jesus, if I take anything away from what we've studied this evening, God, is that we recognize you have conquered, but we are still battling a very real enemy. And though I hear some people say some weird things sometimes about spiritual warfare that just aren't biblical, God, remind us there really is something called spiritual warfare. There really is a need for us to pray. There really is a need for us to share, to give. Lord, there really is a need for us to go. And so I ask you in Christ's name, would you anoint us and would you use us? And God, would you flow through us so that we can reach as many people for you before the sound of the trumpet and Christ returns. But in Christ's name I pray. And everyone said, amen. If you got any questions, I'd love to talk to you about them. God bless you. Good night.